Thank you for joining us today. This is Hope for the Heart, and I, my name is William Rogers. I'll be bringing a message today out of Revelation. In fact, I am in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 11, and uh, this is a very difficult time, I know, for people across the, the world. As we're living in the midst of a war taking place uh, with Russia and Ukraine, and it's just looking more and more dangerous every day. So I want to uh, progress with this uh, time of study and uh, pray that perhaps you will be comforted and perhaps at the same time be warned of uh, the coming of our Lord as the time draws near. Uh, it's just the uh, things are getting set more and more and uh, we're seeing more and more activity worldwide. Uh, I've started doing a prophecy broadcast as far as prophecy updates and I'll be doing another one of those today or tomorrow and talking about the coming war with Russia. So be watching for that, and you maybe, perhaps, if you're able, you can tune in and listen. But today is the message of uh, found in Revelation chapter 11. I want to give you the context uh, and read you the, the text so that uh, you can know what we're talking about today. And I'm going to go ahead and start with uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. We dealt with verses 1 and 2 last week, and today we're going to deal with 3 and 4. And I think it's important to draw these out and to lay these out build the case, so to speak, as to what is going to be happening in the latter part of this one chapter. So, let me give you the, the text, eleven, chapter 11 of Revelation, beginning in verse 1. And the Word of God reads, And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Rise up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the to the nations and they will tread under the underfoot the holy city for 42 months verse 3 and i will grant authority to my witnesses my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth verse 4 these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the lord of the earth now as we are moving through this uh, chapter 11 Revelation, we, be, we begin to realize pretty quickly, I think even starting in Revelation chapter 7, that right up until the end of judgment, God will have his witnesses. The gospel will be proclaimed. The kingdom will be presented. Warning will be of the coming and worse judgment coming. He will leave his written witness in the book of Revelation, and people will be reading this. I believe a lot of people will be researching this in the book of Daniel and trying to follow along to see what is going to be happening, to see the things that are unfolding around them, and understand as well that God is still gracious, and that's what they see in this interlude, perhaps, that God is merciful, God is still working His plan right to the end. The Word of God will be in their hands. They will be able to read it. I guess if they can get a copy, I don't know what the conditions will be as far as finding God's Word written. But they will have witnesses. They will have preachers. Right until the end, God will have his preachers. Not only the 144,000 who have been sealed, and we found that in Revelation chapter 7, but you'll have a lot of people who have been saved, and those will be proclaiming. Some will be martyred. which Many have been martyred, according to uh, Revelation chapter 6. But many will not have been. And you have many Jews that... Uh, are going to eventually turn and win, are turning constantly probably through this period in repentance and looking upon their looking towards the, the arrival of their Messiah and believing. And then God will also have uh, these two amazing preachers on earth. They will 
be there to warn about judgment. They will be there to call men to repentance. Uh, when they are done, the seventh trumpet will blow, which is the end of chapter 11. And I think it's around verse 14. And they are done. The trumpet blows and the seven bold judgments will begin rapidly. And the Lord will return in flaming judgment to destroy the sinners and demons and establish his kingdom on earth. So we have come to chapter 11. So it's, we're in the seven-year tribulation. We're going to meet these two preachers. Before we meet them, I, I just want to remember that the chapter opening with, with an interesting bit of information we discussed last time in, in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. John is drawn into the vision and he is given something. He's given a, a measuring rod. And he is told to rise and measure the temple of, of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, we mentioned last time, and I'm not going to uh, go into all that again, but it looks, uh, it, it took us uh, to a place, as we saw these two verses develop, that these two verses are basically saying, that's verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 11, is saying the temple symbolizes the Jews. And God is measuring out the temple <clears throat> because it belongs to him. It is symbolizing uh, that the Jews are God's possession. And in spite of all of the judgment, all of the demons and Satan activity on earth, and in spite of all that the Antichrist is doing and his massacring people and and uh, working uh, the works of Satan, uh, running and ruling the earth, God will bring Israel to salvation, and then the kingdom will come. That is definitely going to happen. This is not a fairy tale. And he says, measure outside. And he, he says, I mean, don't measure the outside. This is to say that the preservation of the nation of Israel, there will be uh, nations of the world that will be judged because they do not belong to God. And in fact, they will trample Israel, trampling the uh, very city of Jerusalem. But God will limit the trampling to 42 months. And that is another way of saying three and a half years, which is the last half of the seven-year period called the tribulation. Uh, that last part, the three and a half years, is the great tribulation. So the Antichrist is, is going to have his activity. Uh, they're going to be attacking Jerusalem. They're trampling it down, persecuting the Jews constantly. And that's why Daniel talks about it being a time of Jacob's trouble, as, uh, as he called it. Many Jews will hear about Christ. That is the glorious thing. This does not alter the fact that God's word will continue to go out. Jews are going to be hearing about Christ. They're going to be saved. Already you know, 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from every tribe have been converted to Christ. And they're preaching. And they've been preaching starting in the first half of the seven years. And now... Uh, this evangelistic, hard word to say, force is, is going to be added. And that's these two people. These two great instruments of salvation for the nation of Israel. And I believe that's what it's pointing to. And that's what we're going to try to develop for you today. That is to say the Jews that uh, as of yet are not saved are going to be hearing about this. They're going to be watching and observing and being drawn to Christ in the midst of a Gentile trampling the city, even in the midst of the persecution and the slaughter of Jews. Remember this, Jews are still going to be saved. And a great catalyst in their salvation, as we'll see in this chapter, will be these two amazing preachers.
Amazing preachers. That's why the title of my pet my passage for today is Two Powerful Preachers. And it's it's good to remember as as we look at this <clears throat> that whatever the Jews have whatever Jews have not been converted, the preaching of the hundred and forty thousand, hundred and forty four thousand, and all this are going to be many of them will be saved, but many will actually be killed. And so the, in fact, it says in verse 13, the rest were terrified and give glory to God. We'll see how that comes to, to uh, present itself in the text. But I want to meet the two witnesses. I, so much for all of the uh, intro. I could go forever on the intro because I, I, lo- I love this chapter. Even though it is proving to be a very difficult chapter, we must develop verses 3 and 4 so that you can understand what this is basically talking about. Look at what he says. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for three and a half years clothed in sackcloth. Well, these are two special witnesses and they're going to have a duration of time. Uh, It's the same as 42 months. It's the same as uh, 1,260 days. It's the same as three and a half years. All saying the same thing. And during these three and a half years, Jerusalem is going to be trampled by the Antichrist, his his forces, uh, worldwide Gentile force that are massacring uh, all of the Jews they can. There will be a massive outpouring of people trying to kill the Jews. Period of time, these two witnesses will have, I think, a very powerful witness, a very powerful testimony, in spite of pagan, oppo- pagan opposition. God will get his message out. You don't stop that. It will happen. So verse 3 assumes a speaker. I want you to see it. Verse 3 and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. The I and the my are drawn together. And I think this is basically saying for us without any real question here, this is uh, would have to be either God the Father or the, or the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking. I will give permission. God doesn't ask permission. God gives permission. I will grant authority, which is what this is actually saying, uh, to my two witnesses. This is two witnesses to me, to the speaker. Christ will say it's Jesus. Those who give testimony to me. The word witness, and we know this, has, has always come to refer to persons. These aren't books. These aren't videos. And it's amazing what you can find when you read these commentaries across the plane. And I always just kind of look and see how they handle words. Some say movement. Some say uh, these. they're not people. That, uh, But these are people. They aren't weapons. They aren't movements. They're, as some commentators have said, they're, they're, they're people. I will grant authority, says God, to my two witnesses. Witnesses has come to mean martyr. And we think of a martyr as someone uh, who gives a, uh, speaks of the truth of Christ. So frequently uh, seal their testimony in their blood. Two very important, two is a very important number here. Two witnesses. Again, it's, it's going to, uh, it, it, we could go back to the Old Testament and, and just ponder through so many verses, but I don't want to do that. But you'll remember the Old Testament number for confirmation of any testimony was at least two. You must have two. It needed to be confirmed by these two witnesses uh, to the truth. It says it in Deuteronomy. It says it in Numbers and uh, even Hebrews chapter 10, we see it, and, and so on. That's just standard stuff. So these two witnesses are granted authority from God and the Father and the Lord Jesus that are giving testimony to God, testimony to Christ, testimony to the gospel and to God's judgment. And it says they will prophesy. Uh, we, we're just, I'm just covering some of the basic 
thoughts and facts here on this verse. These two are given authority. They're witnesses. They're going to be giving testimony of Christ. Their duration is three and a half years. And so when you look at this, they're, 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 they're prophesying. I will give authority to my two witnesses and see it. They will prophesy. The prophesy. I want to make sure you understand that word prophecy doesn't have the primary sense. They're not going to be predicting the future. But standing before someone, that's what that word basically means, standing before someone and preaching. It can literally be translated, listen to how it can be translated, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will preach for 42, uh, 1260 days. I'm so so I get you, these phrases mixed up, but basically three and a half years clothed in sackcloth. Uh, they will stand before the world. They will preach. What will they preach? Well, the first obvious thing is judgment. They will interpret what's going on for the three and a half years. I think they'll be drawing attention to Revelation. <clears throat> I think they'll be pointing to this. I think they'll be pointing to the acts of things they're hearing about from the Antichrist. And I think uh, that they're going to be showing the judgment of God, the Antichrist, all the things we've seen in the latter parts of the, or the beginning parts of the seals, the trumpet judgments will be going on. These two men will be standing before the world, interpreting that, preaching about that, preaching judgment, no doubt, uh, talking about the judgment of God, and, and relating to what they've seen and possibly what is coming next. Uh, they will be probably drawing people to try to get a copy, or perhaps they'll have copies of the book of Revelation and of Daniel. And in, in drawing attention to this, they'll be warning about uh, hell, which is, will be a time of, of even further judgment. Uh, at the same time, they're going to be warning about <clears throat> the Antichrist. Don't believe him. He's not who he says he is. Or the demons running all over the earth. I mean, they, they have got so much to preach about and to use as illustrations of God's judgment upon an unbelieving world. And uh, they'll be calling men and women to salvation. They'll be presenting the gospel. They'll be saying uh, the age of grace is not yet over. God is not lost control. God is still 100% in control. And that will be a very important thing for people to hear. These two preachers will do this for 1,260 days, three and a half years. That's what it is. The period of their preaching and the predicting of judgments and the and the proclamation is going to be one that is so important for the time that they will be living. So the very first thing we see is something about them, their attitude. And it says they're clothed in sackcloth. Well, basically, they're clothed in sackcloth, which is, uh, it would be like wearing uh, a potato sack around. That's really what it, the best example of what this is. It's a primitive garment uh, sackcloth is basically, really, uh, according to even the, I think, three different dictionaries I looked at, says it's something you would bring potatoes home in, rough, coarse, heavy. And they're wearing this, and of course we know from from reading Isaiah and Jeremiah that the reason the prophets used it, wherever they were, prof they used it when they were prophesying judgment. They took a, a mourning a posture, a sad posture, or a posture of humility it was expressive of sadness. It was expressive of humility. So we see that they're coming in total humility by wearing this. And it's expressive, expressive of that. 
uh, and, and repentance. Uh, when people wanted to repent, they would clothe themselves in sackcloth and put ashes on their head. That's what true repentant Jew would do. So here are two prophets. Uh, in humility, their attitude is sorrow and sadness. Uh, they're not dressed up in festival clothes. They're, uh, they're not happy about what's going on. Man, these are serious people. And they're, they're proclaiming what is happening, the judgment, the damnation. And it's warned by them to express that. That is actually an expression of them. They're mourning over the desecration of the temple and the, the abomination of desolation that has probably just happened or fixing to happen. We don't know the exact timing here. They're mourning over the Antichrist and his rule over the world. They're mourning over the devastation of Jerusalem. Uh, there are so many reasons for this. And so Jacob, uh, in the Old Testament, put on sackcloth. David uh, uh, was, was wore sackcloth. We know that so many illustrations of sackcloth in the, in the Bible. And so the, it, it's a garment of mourning. It's a garment of sorrow. So we come to verse 3, and, uh, and we, we look at these things. And so we, we leave that with, well, we, we have these two witnesses. They've been given permission. Uh, they're going to be preaching to the world for a certain amount of time. That's basically what you have in verse 3. Then you come to verse 4, and there we look at their identity. Immediately read in verse 3, well, who are these people? And it's always interesting to hear people get so wrapped up in who they are it's almost like they're looking for the two witnesses to be uh, coming more than they're looking for Christ or the kingdom. Well, the answer comes in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, you say, well, that really wasn't helpful. Uh, <laughs> I know it wasn't helpful. It, that's why I want to lay out some of this. I, I'm going to take probably most of the time left and give you a description of, of God's plan. But remember now, this is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the time for the Jews. This is redemption again for the Jews. This whole period of seven years, according to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, is showing us that this is God once again working redemptively with the Jews, and that's what we need to remember. So this description of the two witnesses at the two olive trees and the two lampstands stand before the Lord of the earth, is right out of the book of Zechariah, the prophecy of Zechariah. Now, John has drawn on Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 1, verse 4, so we, we've looked at that a couple of times. But here, the two olive trees and the two lampstands stand before the Lord is, is all terminology that is part of the vision of Zechariah. And we find it very expressively laid out in chapter 3 and 4 of Zechariah. They give us the details, so uh, we could. You don't have to go there now, but just as I'm saying these things, make a mental note or a written note to check out and read Zechariah chapter three and chapter four. You'll find it very fascinating. But Zechariah has some amazing visions from God, and uh, the, the, when you read them, you begin to see that the fulfillment of these visions was uh, for that day and also for a future day, a future day that still has not come. So there, there is a near historic fulfillment, and there is a far future messianic fulfillment. And that's what all his visions were. That is, the prophecies that came by vision to Zechariah revealed to him matters relating to the rebuilding of the temple of that day and also of a greater restoration of the kingdom in end time. 
That's very important to understand that. And I have actually talked to people that say, oh, are you one of these that believes there's a near and a far uh, fulfillment of, of a lot of prophecy? And I go, well, yes, I am, actually. They go, oh, how could you do that? That the prophecy in the Old Testament meant for that day. Well, no, it doesn't. It means for this day as well, or even future of this day. And so this is the time of the rebuilding of the temple. Zechariah lived between Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of that temple. And uh, God used Zechariah to kind of get that movement going because they were, they were kind of being delayed. And there were two men that were very important in this. One was a priest and one was a ruler. The priest was Joshua, not the same Joshua as in uh, the taking over after Moses. Not that Joshua, a different Joshua. And then there is Zerubbabel, uh, who is the ruler, uh, the governor or the ruler. And, and so these these two are being drawn into this picture, and I can't, I'm not going to be able to give you all of this, but just the highlights of it. Chapter 3, verse 1, I want to just read that to you. In Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 1, it says in this vision, Zechariah is seeing this, then he showed me, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now listen to this. And Satan standing right at his right hand to accuse him. In other words, here's the picture. Joshua is before the Lord presenting uh, what he needs to say, and Satan is accusing him. Joshua, remember this, as high priest, as representative of the nation, you remember don't you, that the high priest was the representative before God of the whole nation? Joshua, then, is a symbol of the nation of Israel, and he's standing before the Lord, and he's pleading the case of the people of Israel, like any good priest would, begging and talking to God to be gracious and merciful, forgiving, to restore the people and to give back their city and to uh, you know, be with them in the building of this temple. But it says Satan is there. Wow, what a powerful thing. The book of Revelation says that he's the accuser of the brethren night and day before the throne. And then Joshua is saying basically the same thing. I wouldn't... Well, he's showing a picture that Satan is right there beside him in this. Uh, you know, you can always uh, kind of imagine what's going on there, even though we really can't imagine it, so I don't even want to get into a hypothetical conversation. But the Lord does address Satan. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Amazingly, amazingly, this conversation is recorded for us. Was he right? No, God rebuked Satan. Satan's accusation was not correct. God rebukes him for questioning God's promise to restore Israel and then moves to cleanse Joshua. Now, Joshua in verse 3 of Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel. And what does that tell you? Well, Joshua is a sinful man. We found this out from Isaiah chapter 6, or chapter 3 through 6. And in this vision, he sees Joshua with filthy garments. Uh, there's no hiding his sin. He needs to be cleansed. And he spoke and said to him who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, See, I have taken your iniquity from you and will clothe you with festive robes. And he said, Let them put clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So here's a picture of forgiveness and cleansing. He's removing of the, the guilt that Joshua had. And as a representative of his people, God is saying, I'm going to forgive my people Israel. I will forgive the nation. And uh, he, once again, gives the promise of salvation and the, to the covenant people. 
And if my people will meet the conditions, and he gives the conditions laid out. And the people obey. If the people obey, he says, restoration will come. It's an amazing part. Then verse 8, Joshua, I I know I'm, I'm sounding so excited, and I am excited because of what this actually is saying. Man, this is so relevant to uh, the end times and, and, and the picture of salvation for, for Israel. But in verse 8 of, of Zechariah chapter 3, Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are assembled, for behold, I am giving, I am going to bring my servant the branch. Whoa, he brings the branch into this. Who's the branch? Well, the branch is the Messiah. Now we've jumped from the history of the revelation of that moment, of that time, of the rebuilding of that temple, and we're jumping now by bringing the Messiah into it all the way to the future. We've jumped from history present to the very end of time. And then it says, uh, For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, the stones on seven eyes, behold, I will engrave engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land, talking about Israel. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under the vine and under his fig tree. Well, what is that? That's the promise of the Messiah will come called the branch, that's the promise of the Messiah, will set up his kingdom, and in that kingdom, God in one moment, it says in one day at his coming, will remove iniquity, and in that day he will set up his kingdom, and everyone will invite his neighbor and uh, others to come to Christ and to sit and listen. What is that? Well, it's peace, it's holiness, it's uh, the great, ultimate, final, glorious restoration of Israel, and all through the Old Testament, we see pictures and the prophecies related to the glorious restoration of Israel. So what Zechariah is seeing is the fulfillment of that temple being built then and a future fulfillment later. So God chooses Joshua the high priest to stand before him and as the clean and, and as the cleaned, uh, cleansed and forgiving servant in the new temple to be built in Israel. A new Israel will come back from its captivity, and that's for that day. And in all symbolic use of the ultimate final restoration, the eternal glory in the kingdom, that Messiah will bring in a second coming. Now, all this is laid out in chapter 3, but then there is another key player here, and that is Zerubbabel. So we have Joshua and Zerubbabel. The angel who is speaking roused me and awakened me and said to me, and he's talking about a lampstand, of gold and with bowls on the top of it, seven lamps on it, and seven sprouts, uh, spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top. And he's just drawing the scene here of a menorah. And so he's giving that picture here and describing what a menorah is. The bowl he talks about, I just want to give you this kind of a minus of land. It basically is set up to automatically feed uh, oil into the lamps. So there are two olive trees. What are they? Well, what kind of oil did they burn? In these lamps, that's why the two trees are mentioned. They're olive trees, and they're producing olive oil. That is to say, this is what he's revealing in this revelation to Zechariah is a self-contained operation here. The two olive trees are producing oil that goes into the bowl, and it is poured out to the seven spouts and goes to the lamps to keep the light burning. A spontaneous, automatic oil supply with no human agency. That's important. You say, is that important? Well, it is very important. Verse 4, Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking to me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? 
And the Lord said, this is the word saying to the Zerubbabel saying, uh, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I want Zerubbabel to know, I want Zerubbabel to know that without any human agency or any human might, without any human power, God is going to keep the nation of Israel alive. That is what he is saying. Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, you will become, you will bring forth a top stone with shouts of grace to it. The word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the house. And, and so he is laying this out. And so what he is saying is there are two olive trees, and those two olive trees are going to be divine instruments by which God keeps Israel alive. Now remember, he just started out in Revelation chapter 11, talking about measuring the temple, possessing, uh, showing that this is God's possession. These are God's people, not the Gentiles. And so by divine instruments by which God is going to keep Israel lit up, those alive, these two olive trees represent Joshua and Zerubbabel, two men whom God would use to restore Israel during the building of the other temple during Zechariah's day. Joshua would be an instrument of a spiritual side of it, and Zerubbabel would be rebuilding the actual physical temple. Zerubbabel would build the temple by God's power, and Joshua would bring about the revival all by God's power. Between them, the priest and the king, they brought about, I think, uh, complete restoration to Israel at that time, but yet it looks to a future Israel in the definition of the kingdom being defined there. So, in verse 11 uh, of, of Zechariah chapter 3, he said, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand of it? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty golden oil for themselves? So he answered me, saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. He said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing before the Lord of the whole earth. The two olive trees that produce oil, two branches, two pipes, two anointed ones, standing before the Lord, through whom the supply of the Spirit of God flows continually to bring salvation and restoration. Who are they? Well, they're Joshua and Zerubbabel. Now, back to the book of Revelation. I want you to know right here, I am not saying these two witnesses are Joshua and Zerubbabel. But it looks back to what uh, the vision was that Zechariah was given. Those are the two olive trees and lampstands there. So back to Revelation chapter 11, verse 4, we read that God has two witnesses at the end time that are called two olive trees and two lampstands. Now we know exactly what that means, don't we? That God is getting ready for salvation and the complete restoration of Israel. That's what he is giving them. Now I truly believe that during the Revelation period, this will become enlightenment for them. They will read this with anticipation and encouragement. God in the midst of a renewal. God is in the midst of restoration, even though they're going to see chaos all around them. He is in, as in the days of Joshua and Zerubbabel, only this time the new temple will be the millennial kingdom. And so he's measuring this temple and saying that there will be another temple, a new commitment, a national salvation. The new worship will be centered uh, on the Messiah and the Lord Jesus. It's a magnificent imagery that he uses Joshua and Zerubbabel, God's instruments for the restoration or the picture of the restoration of Israel. These were olive trees, golden pipes through which the Holy Spirit's power 
And so these final witnesses, I'll close with this. My olive tree is golden pipes. Wow. It will not be by human power, human might. They will be used to bring about restoration. In other words, they are working towards a complete restoration of Israel and the rebuilding of the temple during the millennial reign. I believe these two play the primary culminating role in bringing Israel to salvation. They become the most powerful preachers to bring redemption to the last part of the remnant. Well, who are they? Well, some say Moses and Elijah. Some say so many things. Uh, I, I don't know who they are. I think it's interesting that people get caught up in this. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, it looks like because of the similarities of their earthly times, Moses and Elijah, that it very well could be them. But I think basically, we don't know who they are. Uh, Moses and Elijah represent so many different avenues of which it could be. Uh, but we don't know. Basically, and, and, and I, I think the church will be gone. I think most of the people guessing won't even be here. And so it's very interesting to know that uh, uh, the, who these will be. But it's, uh, basically, I'm saying you can't be dogmatic. It is kind of curious, and also the length of, of all that we see here, uh, their, their ministry, uh, it definitely makes you think of them. But I don't know who it is. I think it's going to be just two individuals that God raises up to do that. They'll be protected. They'll be given authority. They'll be given power. And they will be a mighty force to be reckoned with. And remember now, they're not going to be welcomed. The world will hate them. And we're going to see that later. Please stay tuned. Please keep up with this and follow along. And be looking for, uh, in the next 24 hours, another prophecy uh, update that I'll be giving you uh, some more details because I've had some interesting questions come from you, the listener, in which I'm going to address them concerning the war with Russia. Is it the same war that's going to be at the end of the tribulation period? And then again, is it the same war as the end of the kingdom? How do we know which one it is or are those three different wars? We're going to address that. So for now, this is William Rogers. You've been listening to Hope for the Heart. And again, I thank you so much for tuning in to where we're doing a, a as much of a verse-by-verse study as we can with the time allowed. And so next time we'll be looking at more of this uh, uh, these witnesses and how long uh, they will be serving and what will happen to them. How will the world receive them? Oh, you are in for a shock. Thank you for listening. See you next time.